All right, um, so tonight we uh, get to continue in the series that we've been doing about the end, and I want to read uh, some quotes to you. I was reading these this week, and it just gets me so stoked. I love thinking about this stuff. So these, these are just, I, I think I have five of them. These are just some quotes from some theologians talking about what's to come. Let me read it. The first time in, for the first time in human history, soldiers will put down their weapons. Just imagine what this will be like. Armies will be unnecessary. Under the direction of Jesus Christ, the resurrected believers of the church will provide the leadership necessary to create a just society of people. Governmental corruption will disappear. Mercy, justice, integrity, peace, and righteousness will be the hallmarks of the kingdom. It's a cool thought. Here's the next one. The earth will also reap the benefits of Christ's righteous rule. The curse that was placed upon the earth following the sin of Adam and Eve will be lifted when the kingdom is established. The desert will rejoice and blossom, it says in Isaiah 35, and the earth will produce abundantly. According to Isaiah 33, all sickness will be eliminated. Deaf and the blind will be cured, Isaiah 29, 18. Here's the next one. The reign of Christ is characterized by righteousness. His reign is not only declared to be one of righteousness, but is also seen in the emphasis that he will rule with an, a rod of iron, which means that sin will be dealt with, and I'm sorry, sin will be restrained and dealt with severely. But in spite of the presence of a sin nature, righteousness, not sinfulness, will be the prevailing atmosphere in the Messiah's kingdom. Two more. Because of the dominion of righteousness on the earth, a number of wonderful consequences will be true. The world will be characterized by peace, joy, a full knowledge of the Lord, and a fullness of the Holy Spirit. Imagine what that'll be like. Last one. There'll be a universal worship of the Lord Jesus centered in the magnificent new temple in Jerusalem. This worship will no doubt be of a quality and depth never before seen on earth as righteous Jews and Gentiles gladly come to Jerusalem to praise the great Savior King. And with the glory of the Lord once again present in the temple, the scene of worship will be best described by the word awesome. I love that. Those are the words of two theologians, uh, two guys, uh, Grant Jeffrey and Paul Benware, and they're talking about what's to come. And it sounds so good, doesn't it? Like when you, when you listen to that, I don't know what goes on in your mind. I just, like there's just something good and right, you know, that, that all of that describes. Like your heart just longs for it, you know? Joy, abundance, peace, righteousness, no more sickness, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't, you, don't you long for those times? Like, don't you long for that to describe the reality that we live in? Heaven's going to be awesome, right? I got news for you. That's not heaven. Believe it or not, that's as good as it sounds. That's not even heaven. Like, this beautiful time isn't eternity. It's like the teaser. What I described for you is like the teaser. It's, it's like the appetizer. It's called the millennium. Can you imagine? If that's the appetizer, imagine what the main course is going to be like, right? Well, tonight we're going to get a chance to dig into both of those, actually, to the millennium, to the appetizer, and the main course. Uh, so I hope you're hungry. You guys hungry tonight? I hope you're hungry. Yeah. 
So, um, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're in the middle of a series that we've been doing called The End, and we're talking about the end times. We're talking about what's to come. And last week, we started talking about the specifics of this series, and we, uh, or the specifics of the end times. And we said, when we start talking specifics, we need to be careful, because the Bible is not terribly clear on how all of the specifics will work together. There's all kinds of different passages in the Old and the New Testament that talk about the end, that talk about the end times. And it's not always clear how to take them more literally or more figuratively and where they all fit together. The basics are clear. The basics, yes. But the specifics are often hard to determine. So we've said throughout the series, we said when we start talking about the specifics of the end times, we hold them with an open hand, right? We hold them with an open hand and we go, this is what we believe. As, as best we could understand what the Bible says and how all these passages go together, this is what we believe, but we could be wrong on the details, right? Which is kind of an uncomfortable thing to say. This is what I believe, but I could be wrong. But it's important for us to acknowledge that in humility. So as we began to talk about the specifics last week, we said there's nothing more important than the big picture. As we, as we talk about the sequence and what this looks like specifically, there's nothing more important than the big picture. And we said the big picture is Jesus what? Wins. Right, yeah, Jesus wins. It's nothing more important than that. Jesus is coming back and Jesus wins, which is, I, you know... There's all kinds of gods in the world that people can follow today, right? There's all kinds of, of things or people or, or lifestyles that we could follow. It's so important to remember that, that the God that we follow is different than any other God in the world, anything else. And he's coming back one day and he wins. And so given that Jesus is coming back and Jesus wins and he loves us so deeply and he desires to have a relationship with us, we said there's nothing more important for us than to know him well, right? All throughout the New Testament, Jesus himself says numerous times, you got to be prepared. You got to be prepared. And we said there's no better way for us to be prepared for the end, for him to come back than for us to know him and to know him well, to have a relationship with him. And so if we know him and we love him, then we got nothing to fear. Sometimes the end times can be kind of a scary thought. Like, what's it going to be like with these rulers that are, come to, are going to come to power? Like, should this be something that I'm scared of? If we have a relationship with Jesus, if we're prepared that way, we have nothing to fear because we're on his side. We're on King Jesus' side. We have nothing to fear about the end and we have nothing to fear about the enemy because our God is so much greater than the enemy, right? He's King Jesus, and he comes back as the triumphant king. He came the first time differently, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. When he comes back, he comes back differently. So we have nothing to fear. And we said last week, we said the view that we take, the understanding that we have of the end times, is two really big words. Ready? Pre-tribulational premillennialism. Pre-tribulational, premillennialism, two big words that you can forget the two big words, but here's what they mean, okay? Pre-tribulational means that we believe that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rapture his church. He's going to snatch his church before pre the tribulation. So we'll, we'll talk about, I'll review what the tribulation is here in a second, but basically it's terrible, terrible, terrible times, right? The wrath of God laid on on earth like never before. And so what we believe is that Jesus is going to snatch all of us that love him before the really 
really terrible times. That's the pre-tribulational. And then premillennialism means that we believe that Jesus is literally, physically going to come and rule the earth for a thousand years. That's the millennial. But he comes before the thousand years, right? That's the premillennialism. Pre-tribulational, premillennialism. We're going to look at the second part of that specifically this week. So last week, we took our uh, first four steps from the cross to eternity. This is how I like to explain the end times. Eight simple steps, eight easy steps from the cross to eternity. Sounds like an infomercial, I realize. It still sounds like an infomercial, I realize that. But it's important for us to understand the sequence, I think, the sequence that the Bible talks about, holding it with an open hand, not just for us. This is really important for us as we dig into this. I want, you, I want us to um, have a, a confidence and an understanding of each of these steps for our own good, right? So that we feel prepared, so that we have an understanding of what this says the end is going to be like. But beyond that, so that when God brings people in our path that have questions, or maybe they're fearful, and they're like, man, this world is, is terrible. I feel like we're in the end times. We can go, well, what do you mean by that? You know? Here, let, let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible talks about the end times. It talks about some of this stuff. And we can explain it to people in an intelligible way. So I hope that as we dig into this, like eight simple steps, we can kind of hold on to it. We could remember it. Um, I hope that we could do that together. So we did the first four last week. We're going to do the second four this week. I want to quickly review, four minutes or less, I want to review what we did last week. And then we'll jump into step number five this week. So step number one that we looked at last week was the first coming, right? Step number one was the first coming. So this is when Jesus came the first time. And we said Jesus came the first time as our suffering servant. He came to pay for our sins, all of our sins, all of the sins of all of humanity. And he came offering us a choice. Do we want our sins paid for? Right? Do we accept it? Do we allow him to rescue us? Remember we talked about the metaphor of like us hanging off a cliff, right? And the weight of our sins pulling us down. Jesus coming the first time was him saying, I will rescue you. All you got to do is let go, trust me, and grab hold, right? He came offering us a choice. Do we receive being rescued? Do we accept forgiveness or do we resist him? And do we reject him? And we go, no, 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 I got it. I'm going I'm I'm to try to claw myself up some other way, right? And when he was here the first time, he said, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. I'm leaving, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to be with me, right? That's step one. Jesus came the first time, the first coming. Step two is the church age, right? This is where we're at right now. And last week we said this is so important. We have one big purpose in the church age. So this is the time that we're in right now. We have one big purpose. The purpose is to grow the kingdom of God to make the name of Jesus famous. This is the one job that we have. Sometimes we can think of our faith as being personal, which is good, but also private. Like, I don't talk about it with other people. That's not our responsibility to keep it, pers- or to keep it private. Our responsibility is to tell other people the good news. It's good news, right? And so our goal is to grow the kingdom of God to make the name of Jesus famous. And that's a good question. Am I, like, is that part of my, the goal of my life, to make the name of Jesus famous for the right reasons? Right? So that's the, pur- the purpose of the church age. We have the first coming. Now we're in the church age. The very next thing, step number three, after the church age, so this is what's coming next, is the rapture. 
The rapture is when the church, all those that have ever loved Jesus, are snatched up. It talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's beautiful. You should read it. Are snatched up. We rise up to meet the Lord in the air to be with him forever. And we said, it's imminent, really important. What that means is it could happen at any time. When Jesus came, he said, I'm leaving. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm coming back like a thief in the night. You won't, no one knows when a thief's coming, right? Unexpected time. And so he says, be prepared, right? So the question is, are, there's kind of a theme throughout this series as we talk about the end times. Are we prepared? Be prepared for Jesus to come back and to snatch his church to be with him forever. That's the third step. So we have the first coming, right? We have the church age. We have the rapture. And then finally we get to step four. This is where we ended last week, step four. And that's the tribulation. The tribulation, in a nutshell, is seven awful, awful years in which God pours out his wrath on mankind as never before. All those that are left behind. Seven terrible years beyond, I think, what we can imagine. Destruction, disaster, death, all of those things. And Satan will be working as well, deceiving people, gathering up an army to battle King Jesus one day. That's the tribulation. And we believe, this is so important, we believe that those of us that love Jesus and follow Jesus will be snatched up before the tribulation out of his kindness and out of his mercy, right? But we said, if, if the church is going to be snatched up and there will be others that are left behind and we're in the church age right now, we should feel a huge urgency to tell people about Jesus so that they are ones that are snatched up, that are raptured to be with him forever. And so we ended our time last week and we said, man, we need to pray, 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 pray that God would provide opportunities for us to tell other people about him. Many people are so confused about who Jesus is. Some don't care, but many do. If we would take the time, if we would live our lives with integrity, the way he calls us to live, and we would take the time to tell them about him, right? So he said, pray, 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 and live our lives with urgency. So that's where we left off last week, and we talked about these first four steps, right? Let's say them together. Ready? Step one, the first coming. Step two, the church age. Step three, the rapture. And step four, the tribulation. Good. This leads us to step five. Ready? Step five is a big one. Step five is the second coming. What's step five? That was pretty weak. What's step five? That was better. Thank you. Actually, we covered this a couple weeks ago when we began our series. Remember this? This is one of those things that's definitely worth seeing another time. So let's look at it. If you've got a Bible, flip it open to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is the return of Christ. So he promised, when he came the first time, he promised he was coming back. And this is what it looks like when he does. He came the first time as our suffering servant. This time he returns as our triumphant king. So this is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So context is really important. The church has already been snatched up. Seven terrible, terrible, terrible years. And then this is what happens next. Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. 
He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. This is us, by the way, and angels, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Means we're holy, we're blameless. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And it says, he will rule them with an iron scepter, with authority, right? He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a striking image, isn't it? It's not, it's not many times the image of Jesus that we think of. It's not, it's not the Jesus that we could ignore, you know? Many times when we think of Jesus in this world, we think, yeah, think of like bobblehead Jesus just sitting there on the shelf. I could think about him or I could not think about him. This is the Jesus that we cannot ignore. So Jesus has come to earth in flesh and blood. That's the incarnation, right? He said, he, so he left. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm coming back to take you to be with me forever. And then he does. He comes back. He snatches up the church. That's the rapture. All those that have ever loved Jesus. And then just, he does that just before he pours out his wrath on the world. That's the tribulation. And now with his church, he comes back in a fury as the triumphant king to demolish evil and to rule the world. And so he said, in this, in this step, the second coming, Jesus returns as the triumphant king to crush evil. To crush evil. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Check it out online if you want more detail with it. But we said, if you're not on his side, you're one of his enemies. Like in, in our world today, like we feel like we want to walk the line with everything, you know? Like I don't want to, I don't want to choose sides. Yeah, Jesus is cool, you know. It's fine. It's fine for you to believe what you believe about Him. I'll believe what I believe here. We're all cool together, right? It's not, it's not how it works in God's economy. Either we're on His side, or we're not on His side. Either we're with Him, or we're an enemy. And we said Jesus is second coming. If you're not on His side, will be terrifying. Because it means your end. It means your destruction. Right? Like it's not, it's not a game. But if you're on his side, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Because he's writing everything that's wrong. And he's bringing healing to a world that's been broken for a long, long, long time. Jesus' second coming is our fifth step. Right? And after our fifth step comes the sixth step. And it comes immediately after. The sixth step is the millennium. What's the sixth step? The millennium. Good. So after Jesus returns, he establishes his kingdom here on earth. But before he can do that, he has to dispose of the evil rulers that came to power during the tribulation. And they've assembled to battle the God of the universe. So this is the battle of Armageddon, right? You've probably heard of it. See movies made about this. So the stage is set for this giant battle. We looked at this a couple weeks ago as well. So the beast or the antichrist, the false prophet, the armies of evil human beings and all the evil people around the world gather together to wage war against King Jesus. But Jesus ruins all their plans very, very quickly, soundly demolishing them all. And then, so, so we're with him, right? Like we've returned with him. We who are raptured are with him. And it seems like when you read the text, like we don't do anything. Sword comes out of his mouth and destroys all of them, right? Soundly. Everyone who's against Jesus is killed. Which is a different side of Jesus than we think, right? 
It's a different side of Jesus than, than maybe what comes to mind naturally. And then when all that is said and done, he sends an angel, remember this, he sends an angel to go capture Satan, bind him, throw him into the abyss, into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. That's the millennium. And then he establishes his kingdom and reigns on earth. And we said earlier, we said this is the appetizer, right? Peace, righteousness, this is his kingdom, abundance, joy, no more sickness, the curse lifted, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Like, just allow your... Allow your mind to go with this. The world in its entirety, all worshiping King Jesus, at least outwardly. Apparently some don't worship from their heart, but at least outwardly. Can you imagine what this will be like? And this isn't even the main course, right? This is, I've been thinking about this. I, you know, part of the benefit of being able to preach is you get a chance to think about this stuff all week. And this is like, consume my thoughts this week. Yeah, sometimes we, as adults, we don't allow ourselves to, like, use our imagination and dream. You know, like, as a, as a kid, you're always using your imagination. I love, my daughter uh, loves to play with dolls, Barbies. So she plays with Barbies. And I love to watch her play with Barbies. Like, it's just so innocent, and it's so beautiful, you know? But as adults, we can kind of think about dreaming and using our imagination as, like, some juvenile thing, you know? Or... We use our imagination in a sinful way, you know. We imagine, you know, lustful sexual fantasies or, or what we want to do to the guy that cut us off on the expressway, you know, if I could just catch him, right? Like, we, we twist it. But I want, I want to encourage you, like, redeem your imagination. Allow yourself to dream. Dream about the end. Like, just think about what it'll be like. Train yourself to do that. I, I want to do it right now for a little bit. Let, let, me, let me just share with you some of the stuff that I read this week from other theologians as they're thinking about and, and, and interpreting what the Bible says about the end, specifically the millennium. Maybe you want to close your eyes and just listen to this stuff. It's amazing. Imagine the worship at the millennium. Like singing to Jesus when he might be in the very same room as you. Or, or at least the very same stadium as you. Imagine being able to turn on the TV or live stream on the internet Jesus' teaching. Like being able to hear him live do that. Like you can almost imagine, I don't know if Jesus will come in my lifetime, I hope he does, but you could almost imagine how he'll use the technology of the day to gather his people, you know, to establish his rule. I just dream about that. In our papers, we open it up and there's like the crime watch section. There'll be no more crime watch, right? There'll be no more violence. There'll be no more hatred. There'll be no more heroin overdoses. All of that'll be gone. Think about this. This is interesting. It's one of the theologians that I read this week talked about this. Maybe he'll entrust you to rule a particular area of the world. Like when he comes back with his saints, it says that we will rule with him. Maybe he'll entrust you to, to rule a particular area. Maybe it'll be the Bahamas. Or Florida or Barberton. Hmm? Yeah. Imagine what that would be like. We had a bonfire last night for Luke's birthday party. Mosquito bites all over the place. No mosquito bites in the millennium. No poison ivy, right? None of that stuff. With the curse lifted, all the animals will be plant eaters. No, no more carnivores. The lion and the lamb will be together. The, the wildebeest and the crocodile. Tom and Jerry will finally be friends with each other, right? Yeah. 
so there's a lot of detail here on what we believe about the millennium and, and what it's going to look like, how it's going to play out. That's kind of beyond our scope here this evening. But basically, those of us who were either raptured by Jesus or came to know Jesus during the tribulation and died or lived and followed God before Jesus came to be, all of us will have these glorified bodies. And we talked about this last week too. You know, like I, I like to dream about my glorified body, what I'm going to look like. I said last week, I'm going to be about 6'4", 3% body fat, Tyler Jensen's hair, right? Like, I like to dream about that stuff, you know? Like, imagine, imagine what that'll be like. I was talking to Luke, my son, about it this morning. I think, well, I don't know. I, I have no biblical proof of this, but I think we'll be better than the best versions of ourselves, you know? better than the best version of ourselves. But here's the thing, and this, this blows my mind because it's so sad. As amazing as it is for Jesus to like be here with us and rule with us, there'll be people who still choose to resist him and turn away from his leading and turn away from his love. They may fall in line externally, but during this millennium, during this thousand-year reign of Jesus, There'll be some that fall in line outwardly, but their hearts are not his. Jesus says Jesus rules with an iron scepter, right? So their outward actions may fall in line, but their hearts will, their hearts will be with them. Isn't that amazing? Like he'll, he'll physically be there. The resurrected Jesus. You'll be able to see him, his holiness, his perfection, his beauty, his compassion, his love. His mercy, all of it. You'll be able to see it. And there'll be some that reject it. It shows you how. And, and Satan is bound during this time, right? This is not like satanic influence. This is the rottenness of our human hearts. The rebelliousness of our human hearts. Not to be underestimated. So at the end of the millennium, this thousand year reign of Jesus, for whatever reason, we don't really fully understand why, Satan is then released from this bottomless pit and he goes and he gathers this vast army of people. To, so, so during the thousand year reign of Jesus, at, right afterwards, Satan's released and he's able to gather a vast army of people who want to be against Jesus. Like wrap your mind around that. It says as numerous, in the text it says, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. So Satan gathers this vast army and then this is what it says in Revelation 20.10. It says they're about to attack him. So like another potential big battle. They're about to attack Jesus and his people. And then it says this. But fire comes down from heaven and devours them all. Like it's like, it's power. It's majesty. It's strength. Totally anticlimactic. That's how the millennium ends. That's how step six ends. And then we get to step seven. Step seven is the uncomfortable one for us. Step seven is judgment. What's step seven? Judgment. And yeah, we don't like to say that one too loudly, do we? Yeah, step seven is judgment. So after fire comes down from heaven and devours everyone, Satan is thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were thrown earlier. They'll be tormented day and night forever, which is what it says, which sounds fitting for them, right? And then we get to judgment. And I've, I've simplified this a bit because actually some judgment has happened earlier, earlier than step seven. 
But it's probably a judgment that's different than the way that we most naturally think about judgment. Most of the time, at least me, when I think about judgment, I think about you're being judged so you can be punished for what you've done wrong, right? It's kind of what we naturally think of with punishment, with judgment. But this is different. The judgment that happened earlier is a judgment of rewards instead of a judgment of punishment. Those who love Jesus will be judged before the final judgment for all of the good and all of the bad things that we've done and will receive our proper rewards in, or loss of rewards in the millennium and in eternity. This is called the Bema judgment. The Bema judgment. So we're saved one way, right? We're saved by allowing Jesus, by reaching up, and grabbing hold of him when he reaches down to rescue us, right? By trusting in him and following him. That's how we're saved. But we're rewarded according to how we live our lives. That's what the Bible says. So we don't have time this evening to look at the reward there, but I'd encourage you, in your grace groups, this will be one of the things that you'll discuss. I'd encourage you, if you want to look at it a little bit more in depth on your own, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 to 15, specifically talks about it, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 to 10 talks about it. I encourage you to check that out this week. That's the Bema judgment. That's the judgment of rewards for those of us that love and follow Jesus. Back to the judgment after the millennium. So Christians have already been judged. Flip over to Revelation chapter 20. Maybe you're in chapter 19 still. Flip over to chapter 20. After Satan is judged, we have something called the great white throne judgment. So all of the rest of the dead are raised. And when John, who wrote Revelation, when he uses the word dead... Just plain old dead. He means the unsaved dead. When John is referring to somebody who is a dead believer, he talks about the dead in Christ. But when he he uses just the word dead, he's talking about the unsaved dead. So at the great white throne judgment, all of the unsaved dead are then raised and judged. I want you to take a look at it. Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. This is what it says. So this is John's vision. Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, which is all of them that were raised at this point, then he was thrown into the lake of fire, which is another word for hell. Judgment's uncomfortable to talk about. And yet God's justice and his righteousness demand it. So when I, when I read that, like when I think about the sort of judgment, the great white throne judgment, I think about so many people being banished from God's presence forever and ever. I have very conflicting feelings about this. On, on one hand, I feel this deep joy, you know, because evil is finally, finally going to be totally extinguished. It'll be all gone. No more conflict, no more wars, no more pain, no more evil, none of that anymore. And that brings me great joy because the battle's going to be over, you know? Like, I don't know if you live your life the way I do. Some, some days feel like a battle, an 
absolute battle. I was talking to somebody right after the, the first service and I feel like I, they said, I feel like I'm being attacked all the time, right? And when I, when I think about judgment, part of me is like, it's joyous. Kind of like, the battle's over. We don't, we don't have to think about that anymore. We don't have to wrestle with that. Shalom is here. Peace, unity, completeness, wholeness. That gives me joy. But then I also have this pit in my stomach. Because I know that there will be people that I know and I love that will be raised unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And I know I can't make somebody believe. I know that. I don't, I don't beat myself up for that. Boy, it really challenges me to think, am I living my life in a way that I could be used by God effectively to help somebody not have to experience that second judgment, the great white throne judgment? Am I living my life with integrity, the way that this says to live as a follower of Jesus? Am I living that way, or am I living in a way that's convenient for me? Am I praying for and looking for opportunities with people that God has placed in my life? We said, we're his plan, like we're, we're his plan in people's lives. He allows us to be a part of people coming to know him. He doesn't have to. Am I praying for and looking at, looking for opportunities to be a witness, to be his ambassador? Not in a forced way, not in a, a proselytizing way, like, do I love people enough to tell them the truth, to tell them the good news, the hope that we have? We, we, since we've moved, we've got some new friends that we're making kind of around where we live. We think, praying about, like, I, I want to I have an opportunity, Jesus, to tell them about you. Are we praying for that? I think when we think of judgment, there should be some joy and there should be some pain. And so as you think about that, we think about others, right? But we also think about ourselves. And it goes back to that thing that Jesus said numerous times. Are we prepared? Are we prepared personally as we sit here tonight? Only you know your heart. Are you on his side or are you not on his side? I challenge you, if you're wrestling with that tonight, like don't, don't put it off. Go to him. Talk to him. Read about him. That's step seven. I gotta go on. As you might have guessed, once we get past judgment, there's really only one thing that's left. Step eight is eternity. What's step eight? Eternity. That one's easier to say, right? Sort of. Next week, as we finish up this series, we're actually gonna spend all of our time looking at eternity. Eternity doesn't have a lot of choices. This isn't like the deodorant section at the drugstore. There's not a lot of choices when we're talking about eternity. We got two choices. And it's not like two okay choices or one that's really good that we want and one that's, eh, that's okay, it'll suffice. It's not that way. We have one choice that we really want. It's incredible. And we have one that we really don't want. So we talk about eternity. We talk about eternal bliss, and eternal suffering. Well, there's an option that's better. I'll, leave, I'll, I'll be quick with this. We'll dig into it more next week. But there's an option that is better than we could ever fathom. Better than our imagination can even begin to grasp. 
There's an option that will bring us complete joy, complete excitement, complete uh, satisfaction, purpose, happiness, any other positive emotion that we could think of. And it'll last forever. It's eternal. And then there's an option that'll be worse than we can ever fathom. Worse than our nightmares can even grasp. It'll bring us terror and pain and sadness and torment and suffering and any other negative emotion that you can imagine. And it too will last forever. Complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And guys, the way that we receive the good choice, the good option, is so simple. It gets so clear. And yet, and it's free, but it costs us everything. It costs us everything. We have to let go. And we have to grab hold of Jesus. Whether we like it or not, the Bible is so clear that our eternity all comes down to what we do with Jesus. Is he the most important thing about me? Or is he not? Am I on his side, all in, 100%? I've let go and I've grabbed hold of him? Or have I not? It all comes down to what we do with Jesus. So guys, here, here's how I want to end. I've, I've uh, each week been kind of pulling a few different practical things, like what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our life as we walk out of here? I got one thing I want to challenge you with tonight. And it's so simple, but it's so important, and it's so easy to neglect. Here, here's all I want you to do with all of this. Just pray about it. Like this week, just go talk to God about it. Like talk to him about what you should do with all of this, like stuff about the end coming. Is it near? I don't know. It feels like it. It's nearer today than it was yesterday. He's coming back. He promised. Talk to him this week and say, what should I do? Like how should this impact my life right now? How should my life, God, just show me ways that my life should be different right now. If Jesus is not the most important thing to you, talk to him about that. Tell him to reveal himself to you in a way that is undeniable. And ask him to give you the strength to follow him. That's my challenge to you. Just pray about this. Just talk to him.